got a very Ramba cast for y'all today. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, well, we're going to explain it. Um, our, uh, we have a guest today. Uh, our guest is writer Mike Sachs, writer of uh, the novels uh, Passable in Pink and Stinker Let's Loose. To, how would you describe them? Uh, how would you describe the genre that they're in? How would I describe them? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a new genre. I mean, these are novelizations to non-existent movies. There you go. There you go. Um, I actually did do a review of uh, Stinker Let's Loose that we'll be posting with this a few years ago, actually, now that I think of it. Um, very. Uh, he's got a lot of other credits. Uh, he's written several... Uh, you've got um, a book on comedy that I've, I've read that's very good. Uh, Your Wildest Dreams Within Reason, that was another really good one. And uh, Randy is such a glorious, strange thing. Uh, some really good stuff. And he has one of the funniest websites. I've, I've spent way too much time browsing that site uh, in my spare time. So a funny guy. And um, his newest book is Passable in Pink. And um, Mike, I'm going to let you describe it to the listener. Passable in Pink. Well, Passable in Pink is a movie that came out in 1983 uh, from a very reclusive guy named Gerald Holt, J-E-R-R-O-Y-L-D, Gerald Holt. He was in the Marines. Not much is known about him. He uh, got some money. His mom died, and he started putting out these movies that were really the predecessor to John Hughes. So most of John Hughes' movies... Um, are based sort of on his movies, like Return of the Sakaka 7 was the uh, movie that um, Big Chill was later uh, uh, based on. So he was really the first, Gerald Holt. So he put out this movie in, uh, actually it was, a, it was a short film in 79 into 80, and then he made it into a longer film in 82. And it became the forerunner for, uh, Pretty in Pink, uh, John Hughes movie. Perfect. All right. It's um, it's it's definitely a it's a it's a surreal trip. It's a surreal trip. Uh, we, all three of us, of course, either read or listened to it because there's a fantastic audiobook on Audible. Yes, a, a full a full cast drama. Yeah, it's a good cast. Um, yeah, great Adam Scott, Gillian Jacobs, Bob Odenkirk, Bobby Moynihan, Ray Seahorn, uh, Justine Bateman, Judd Nelson, Lorraine Newman. Um, it's a great, uh, a great cast. And um, uh, we made that last year. And it was always my intention to put out the to republish the novelization that came out in 82. Uh, so that is what I just did that um, just came out uh, two months ago. And, it, you know, it's it looks exactly like it would if you had bought it used. Uh, there's, you know, bending uh, rips on the cover. There's 
film stills uh, with captions inside and so also the uh, original advertisements in the back yes zephyr uh, actually was the one that got the uh, printed copy because um albert and i did uh we did a listen um i had to do the listen because of the four-year-old that really came down to that actually, i actually renewed my audio uh, uh my audible subscription to be able to listen <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it turned out well. We have a whole soundtrack too that's available. The yeah, Fast One Pink. Oh, nice. Yeah, and it's a it's a really as someone who really does genuinely love that kind of music, I really I really vibed with it because it really captured it. Um, this thing is it's a, it it really is a trip to experience. Again, uh, the the audio version is so good. How did that come together? Well, what happened was I put out, um, I republished Stinker Let's Loose, which originally came out in 1977. It was a trucking movie, uh, played for a few weeks in some Southern drive-ins and then disappeared. Um, I put that, I republished that three years ago, two and a half years ago. And um, a friend of mine got in touch with me, Eric Martin. He's a producer and narrator. He said, can I have the rights to this? I said, sure, if you can get it made, that'd be great. And he ended up selling it to Audible, which is related to uh, Amazon. So from there, John Hamm got involved, and then uh, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, Ray Seahorn, the great Ray Seahorn from Better Call Saul. And we put that out two years ago as an audio movie um, based on the novelization with a full soundtrack, CB and radio soundtrack, by the great Mark Rozo and his friends and um including um musicians from guided by voices and some other great bands so that came out two years ago and i i wanted to put out um another forgotten movie this one from the 80s from a different decade so i put out this one um a couple months ago and um just finished uh the re-release of the 1990s little known movie called slouchers which will be released next year and that is based off the early 90s Gen X type movies like Singles or Reality Bites. I cannot wait to experience that. Uh, and that one's my generation, so that'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are, these are such specific finds. Uh, what works from the 80s uh, inspired you to dig this up? Well, I had, you know, those are the movies I grew up with. And... Um, I have a daughter who is 11 and I was, you know, I was watching these movies. I was watching everything at her age. I was, I was, my parents took me to see Porky's in the movie theater. Wow. Um, and I pretty much was feral, you know, I could do or do anything. I was pretty much left free. So, um, which is not the way I am with my daughter. So I thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to rewatch these movies before I show them to her. So I rewatched 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And um, they're funny, but there's a lot of stuff that does not age well. You know, mm -hmm. specifically the Asian-American character, not even American, the Asian character in 16 Candles, um, and the references to rape in 16 Candles. I mean, just a lot of stuff that almost... Like, like, like casual was made. references, too. 
Yeah, I mean, jokey references, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought, yeah, I just don't want to show it to her. So I thought, well, I'll show it to her, but I'll edit out the inappropriate parts. I mean, she didn't last but two minutes in Breakfast Club <laughs> before she wanted to get back to Harry Potter and the movies that she likes. So it was kind of interesting to me that these movies have aged in one generation pretty poorly, which really didn't surprise me, I guess, because John Hughes started off as a writer for National Lampoon. And if you look at his pieces for National Lampoon, uh, in the mid seventies to late seventies, they're pretty risque. They're pretty. They really are. Yeah, they're pretty slash and burn, right? So he came from that generation. He wasn't really a pop teen pop filmmaker as much as like someone breaking barriers, um, and you know, smartly made movies that sort of were PG to PG thirteen at that time, rather than R, uh, but. It, it didn't really surprise me on one hand, but it sort of shocked me. I mean, I'm not easily shocked, but like some of these depictions were just beyond uh, what I had been used to seeing. You know, it was just like a slap in the face. And, and I can see that because a lot of that stuff is really brought to the fore. Um, because it's interesting you say that. I, I'm the oldest of the group at 36, and... Even for me, they feel like they're movies that I just missed the moment on. Yeah. Um, like, I just was born too late. Because, of course, I was six when he was doing Home Alone. And, I mean, I think those movies have aged about as well as a slice of American cheese in a hot car. So, you know, there's that. Um, but you're right. And I think it is kind of interesting how you mentioned he started as this risque writer. I, I have read some of his stuff from... National Lampoon, because I'm quite a fan of that era of comedy. See, for that stuff, for I don't know why that stuff aged well for me. And I, yeah, he his career is just, I don't want to say baffling, but it is fascinating. I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah it is fascinating. I mean, it's a very specific time. And, he, I, you know, I was 10, 11, 12 at that time when these movies came out. And um, this was pre-internet free cable for me and um you know it wasn't that easy getting pop culture so there really wasn't much out there so what was out there was sort of um old school or you know for teens or this and it was pretty fresh at the time you know it, it was a definitely different vibe sensibility than what we had seen before but um it was a very specific time and it did change the movies that came after it, um, but I think those who didn't grow up with them, those who might have seen them later, um, would certainly come to them from a different standpoint. You know, they meant a lot to us because they were different and better than anything out there at the time, but that didn't hold true for uh, the generation that came after. And I, th- I think that's going to be almost universal. I think the only movie from like my era that I think would be has even had any legs was clueless. I think that's like it from my era. And Mean Girls is at the extreme outer edge of that era for me. Um, but like I, I think the stuff that we loved, I don't know that I would want to subject someone to, to the teen comedies that I, actually I take that back. Ten Things I Hate About You is brilliant, but that's that's it. Yeah, and, it's different too. You know, when you are 
coming at it from an adult, you're going to be looking at it differently. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just reads differently. I even see with my daughter now, she'll watch a movie she liked or laughed at a few years ago, and she'll look at it now and like, why did I laugh at that? Um, so you definitely do look at it with new eyes. It's just that even some of his movies, I, you know, I think Trains, Planes, and Automobiles is a classic. I think I agree. Movie. Hardcore agree. I yeah. think that's... I think it's a beautiful movie, um, very adult movie, very mm. emotionally deep, uh, sad movie in a lot of ways. And I think you know, he was really hitting a stride, a stride at that point. And I think it would be interesting to see what he would have done if he hadn't died so young, if he would have yeah. made movies. He died at 59, and I think he could have really made some mature, <clears throat> interesting projects. I think the ones that he made, he made quite young. You know, he was in his... 30s, low 30s, young 30s, mid 30s, when he made Breakfast Club, maybe 13, 15 years older than the people he was, um, the actors he was directing. So it would have been interesting to see what he would have produced. I just think a lot of it is, um, you know, raw, and uh, which is fine. I just don't think that they've aged well. Yeah. And that's and that's what I think makes everything in Passable and Pink just absolutely pop is that it, it feels like you're seeing it from that perspective because uh, I, I I could catch everything that would so to speak inspire the later stuff I I could see it uh, you, I could practically sit there in my head and go okay I get this 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 and it, it was it was never necessarily like a checklist so much as it was like, I don't know, it was that pop of familiarity, so to speak. Well, uh, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I did a lot of research in putting this out. And actually, The Onion later said that it was like leaving a VHS copy of 16 Candles inside of a hot car for 30 years and just warping it. Yeah. As, uh, like, one of the things that I love is when he... Uh, is when Roland is going down the hallway uh, and it's like all the sleazy kids and it's when it hit the Rain Man reference, I was just, my back was hurting. <laughs> I don't even remember what the hell that, what was the Rain Man reference? Um, the, I, I've got, I've got the book right here. I've got oh, go right, right ahead. <laughs> yes. it. Yeah, just the. Uh, because it, it was followed immediately right with a, a blue velvet reference. Because you do briefly mention the uh, the uh, the student who uh, who discovers the severed ear but ignores it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that I remember. I don't remember the Rain Man one though. I tried to combine uh, a lot of all those references from from those movies, uh, not just. Pretty in Pink, but Ferris Bueller and all those 80 movies. I like to get them all in there as references somehow. I yeah. Say, uh, it's inter came out from an interesting perspective because uh, I actually listened to Passable in Pink before seeing Pretty in Pink. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I prefer your version. Yeah. Oh. That's yeah. A, I, I never liked I never liked Pretty in Pink. I was I, especially the ending. Which does is, yeah i could tell you didn't like it that was pretty that was pretty bold bold in this work i yeah. i i was not shocked to hear that at all well what's interesting is the novelization to pretty in pink not passable in pink 
uh, ends with the original ending in the script yes. where Ducky gets together with the Molly Ringwald character. Oh my. Mm -hmm. Oh geez. I love your, uh, or the ending of, um, uh, like a, he reveals the nude portrait and, uh, just on the audiobook version, there's like horror movie soundtrack <laughs> beats. And it's like a, ah, uh, okay, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, um, a realistic take on high school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the, the reference that I remember is it's the uh, guy who, it's the reference to the uh, guy who made his autistic brother go to Vegas and count oh, cards. That's yeah. the one. And right, it's, yeah. Because two of us are, are actually autistic on this cast, uh, Zephyr and myself. And so, for us, any slam at Rain Man feels kind of nice, just to be blunt. Well, that's interesting. I think I'm a bit on a spectrum, too, quite frankly. How, how does it come up with you guys? Um, it's kind of a case of uh, very single-minded focus. Um, incidentally, one of my big focuses is movie tie-ins. Mm -hmm. Go figure which brings us to today. Yes. Um, it, it's uh, movie tie-ins, um, collecting, stuff like that, um, big movie buff, which that actually helped me get a social life in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and then just very awkward, difficult, difficulty in conversations. Um, I don't think I could have gotten into the dating world without online dating. That really was a blessing to me. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, it made it a, lo a lot easier, didn't it? It did because you got to you got to throw all your cards on the table and be like, here, here's here's the situation, and uh, then uh, you know, and that led me to where I'm sitting now. Uh, my wife is, she's actually being really good in letting me uh, record this while she, I think she's taking a nap now. Um, and then our daughter went to go stay with my dad for the night. So no, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think if if. Well, if you had grown up in the early 80s, would it have been more difficult for you? Pre-internet. Yeah. Oh, I think, I think pre-internet, I, I would have been lost. Pre-internet. In fact, that actually gives me a good segue, because that was something I want to talk about, which is the, the style of, no, of, of writing that you see in novelizations, it's a very specific style. And it, it's funny that I think if you, unless you read a lot of them, you don't really catch it. But it's a very flat, very minimalistic style. And I really love that in both of these books, it's been captured really well. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I'm um, a huge fan. What'd you say? I'm a huge fan of novelizations. Well, then, um, <laughs> who are some of the writers then that you've liked that have done them? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Um, there, there's a few. Uh, Johnston, William Johnston. Um, and like you see them over and over again. Um, yeah, you do. But it's, I mean, like even, but famous people have done them too. Beverly Clary did a novelization of the uh, Leave it to Beaver TV yep, show. Really? Yep. Yeah. Um, huh. But it's really kind of a lost thing because I, they, they were the only reference for me for movies I wanted to relive. I didn't have, I guess, I, I, you know, they were VHS, but it would take a year, and then they would cost $80 for the tape, and mm -hmm. they weren't played on TV. They weren't being, there was no internet. So for us, this was really the only way to relive it. 
And I remember getting uh, my first one was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, I've got that. I've got that. Yeah. And I love the writing style because it's not about the style as much as just purely telling the story. And it's based off always the script. And there's a real art to it. It's not easy to do. Um, to it's really not. Uh, translate from the film, the cinema, to the book. It's quite difficult, and not a lot of people can do it. And I uh, just, I like it. I would rather read that than, you know, a short story in Harper's. I really would. It, to me, it's just like, no bullshit. Here's the story. Um, this is what happens. And it moves along at a good pace, and then it's over. And, and I can see that. Uh, yeah, you're right about uh, writers. Cause, I mean, I get off the top of my head. I feel uh, certainly in the science fiction realm, Peter David has done a huge number, and his have always been really fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's and it's interesting because when you read a bad one, and I have I've, I've hit on a few of them, uh, it's kind of you, you can always like really tell that it's like, ooh, this was this was not a good fit. But like with this one, I really it's funny because I kept reading listening to this thinking, all right, this really reminds me a lot of writers like the late Harriet Gilmore, who did uh, Grease and Clueless. Oh, yeah. 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 Which both actually have very distinct novelizations. Um, right. Well, Clueless is a great novelization. Clueless is a fantastic novelization. Yeah. They, yeah. And, that, and that could not have been easy because you're working with such a, again, a beast of a script there. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, it's really, they have to turn these around really quickly, and sometimes they don't even have the complete script or an mm -hmm. early version of the script. So yeah. it's a real um, journeyman's task as a writer to do this. And it's these aren't fancy writers. These are writers who are out there hustling, making money, producing book after book after book, um, which I love. You know, To me, that's a throwback to the 50s and 60s when you can actually make a career as a freelance writer for magazines and books which you can't do anymore really yeah um, that to me is i love that and even if it's not quote unquote perfect there's a rawness to it that you know they were up you know with caffeine for two weeks straight just trying to barrel their way through this thing i love that <laughs> Well, I mean, that, and that's the thing about the Clueless novelization that really struck me, because I actually recently revisited it uh, when I was going through. Um, I revisited that along with Ian Desher's um, recent uh, Shakespearean retelling of that uh, film, uh, which is fantastic. Um, and then, of course, I watched the movie. I, I wanted to hit all the notes for the 25th anniversary. But you really see the slang, like how the writer was trying to work with this very specific linguistic style and and I've got to get on the slang on this book because while the slang in Passable and Pink is just it's glorious we've been using it back and forth in our group chat even <laughs> like, like which one? we were we've referred to things as tib tib <laughs> well see that's another thing I love about these these novelizations so you have people who may be young writers writing a, a movie like Clueless, the people who wrote the no novelizations are inevitably in their 50s or 60s who yep. don't quite grasp the nuances of the language. And I love detecting when that happens. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing <laughs> funnier to me than when a middle-aged guy is trying to write young and not 
pulling it off. And that's what I tried to do too with these novelizations where I wasn't writing them. It, they were written by a character out in LA in the 80s who was 60 and didn't quite get the new teenage slang. I loved the constant insertions of, it was as <laughs> if this was written by somebody who had no experience with what they were doing. Right. And <laughs> that, I, like that and, uh, or just putting actual used slang in quotes because it was new and foreign, whereas the slang that was made up in Passable and Stinker, you're just expected to know what they are and roll with it. Like, it was always there. Right. Well, that, that, that's part of the character for this one is she's assuming that the, the reader doesn't know either. So it'll be like, so, and this these glasses were tip-tip, which means dot, dot, dot. Yeah. yeah. For me, her translating that uh, was I like I just found that funny, it, it, or of course the constant references of it was as if the song was written for her. I mean, just the con you're you're constantly aware of that fourth wall in this book, and yes, it's 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 great. Just I quite, I quite enjoyed the uh, the constant uh, ah. The, uh, Joy, this this song by Joy Division was playing, except it wasn't because copyright. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing too. Like I love playing around with uh, these novelizations, and which they can't get away with in certain ways because you know just legally they can't reproduce lyrics. Right. <laughs> so it'll be another song, but not the same, but really similar. Right. Yeah, exactly. Wanted to make fun of that. And you do see that. Like you'll see that where. It's a case where they blatantly put in something because you can tell they couldn't get away with it. One of my favorite things about the Clueless novelization is they couldn't say gay. Really? This is completely true. You, you, you go back and read it, and when it's talking about Christian, they go right up to the line of pointing out that he's gay. They get in that glorious long quote, and then they leave out the, he's gay. Right. Well, that's the thing, too, because it was of its time. And at that time, you could not come out and say it. Which is so bizarre because they then get some of the because then they got some of the other incredibly raunchy lines from that film in there. And it it cracked me up. Um, and that's another thing, too. You would you would sometimes see these books where they're written for an age group that's younger than the one that's going to be experiencing it. I saw this with the Sixth Sense novelization where they omit a reference to a character being drunk and they say that he's happy instead. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they, they try to appeal to those who might even be too young to legally get into the movie. Which is, right. biz which is bizarre because that, no that novelization actually came out months after, it, like it came out in March of 2000, long after the film had been out. And so it winds up being that every other thing from that movie is completely accurately reproduced including some pretty graphic gore descriptions, bizarrely enough. Um, I would point out it's a pretty good novelization of a pretty good film, but, you know, it's surreal. And I think the, yeah, the violence never bothered anyone at that time. It was no. all sexual mm -hmm. stuff. But for some reason, the, the, John Hughes got away with that, um, especially the rape references. I don't, I'm not quite sure why. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really even 
grasp it at the time, but watching it now, those really, you know, are striking. Right. In hindsight. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, you, you mentioned the racism. I mean, thank oh. you for thank you for what you did with that. Thank you for how yes. you handled that because it no. it was glorious. Well, no, there's, had... no, there's no ethnicity in the, in these movies, and that's mm -hmm. what always bothered me about Ferris Bueller. Is like you know he goes into the city, and it's a total white suburban view of what one would do in the city, and even the way they look at the parking lot attendants. Hispanic. You just think, what the fuck? I mean, the whole thing is just so bizarre. It's almost like a sci-fi. Well, it's a white Chicago. It has to feel like it's science. Like, that's the thing. Is Hughes was working with Chicago and making it ultra-white. Yeah. Again, I work at the newspaper. Chicago is not ultra-white. Well, no, but, but that's the thing. The movie is like, all right, what would a suburban kid white kid want to do and it would be go to the top of a sears tower go to a cubs game go to the stock market go to a museum like all this is just like who the hell does i mean and the <laughs> fact that the only ethnics in the movie are featured as being quote-unquote bad because they take the car out like to mm -hmm. me they're the most interesting characters in the movie at least they're having fun you know not whining <laughs> I hate Ferris Bueller's Day Off with such a fiery passion. I think he's a sociopath. It's one of yes! the... Mm -hmm. I think he's a horrible, awful character. And so that's why when it gets to the bit where Grimer is dancing on the car and you're hearing everybody around him react, it's like, I want to murder that guy. You're like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, he... You know, watching this now, it's even more obnoxious but like who the fuck is this guy who is holding up traffic because he wants to dance on top of a car you just want to fucking throttle him i mean i i remember i was I, the the first time that i saw that movie it was at one of those outdoor screenings that is one of the few good jokes family guy has had in the last since it ever came back where they described sitting on a rock watching a movie that they've watched a million times uncomfortably that's how I watched Ferris Bueller, and I just, I was sitting there going, if the heat, the humidity, and the mosquitoes don't kill me, this movie is going to kill me. Oh, my God. I find it insufferable. And so, having it, and especially having it done through Bobby Moynihan's voice, because yes, he is, he's one of those actors that I, I'm always excited when he's in something, and he is so well used here. Ooh. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, he's he's very funny in this, and... He plays a character who's totally unhinged. Yes. Every time he uh, he does a line, there's, uh, you know, he, sh he shows them his home, finally. And then, uh, okay, so how do we get out of here? Oh, you're not going to get out of here. Just kidding. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, a, when's the point where he's going to be, like, serious about it? <laughs> well, he's mentally ill, too. I mean, you know, he, mm -hmm. he, he's wearing... Uh, mental institution clothes um so i you know his his background is god knows what what his background is but i, I really did want to make fun of that type of character uh who is just totally unhinged and no one says anything about it mm -hmm. and and it's instant from the first moment that he shows up in in it you're just like okay 
this is the kind of character that we used to be told was normal and funny. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this character is just, it's, it's hell. And you know, it's the ducky, it's the Ferris Bueller. It's all of these characters that you're told, aren't they quirky? Um, something that you got, because his first appearance is in the mall. I have never seen somebody describe a mall with the idea of, well, there's the good wing and then there's the bad wing. <laughs> yeah. But I kid you not, every mall I've ever been in fits that description. So, oh, no. without a doubt, yeah. I, I, I like, I know those stores. I could picture those stores, and I especially loved the cages. I loved the cages. Yes, yeah. the cages. If you get something wrong, you're hung above um, with fraying rope. It just, I mean, I I also really love, and something that you really get on that all of Hughes' movies seem to suffer from this is the architecture porn. The, the, the constant description of houses that it's just, because that's what all of his movies have is it's everything is set in this, like the characters are supposedly impoverished or middle class and they live in these mansions. Right. Well, that, that's what I, fascinated me about that area, which I've, you know, I've only been to twice. Um, but in all the movies I've seen about it, whether it was John Hughes or John Cusack movies, architecture, geography plays a huge role. Mm-hmm. And whether that's real or not real, I'm not, I, I don't even know if it's reality based, but like living on the wrong side of the lake can make or break your social life. I've got to figure that if, as long as you're living in a mansion, they don't care. But it, it, it. I believed it. I, I was like, I can picture this. I can see this. Um, and it was really, really well done. Again, um, since we, since let's go back to the topic of novelizations, I have to ask, what are your favorites? If you well, have any. Um, well, I would say um, the. Uh, first of all, the Indiana Jones movie, yeah, uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, there's a movie, one of the first, um, actually, even before I got Temple of Doom, I got a novelization, which I can't find anymore. It was based off a uh, The Fish That Ate Pittsburgh, it's called. And, yes, I'm familiar um, with that. Uh, it's about a basketball team with uh, horoscope. I mean, it's very late 70s. That one's good. Another one is extremely rare is the novelization for Over the Edge, which was one of my favorite movies, um, which you can't even find uh, out there except through like bootleg. Um, yeah, that's a great one. I love that one. The uh, you're talking about the uh, the Tim Hunter movie. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which God, that's such a one of those films. It's such a milestone for so many actors that came out of it. And- Oh, yeah. Great motion picture, yeah. Oh, it's great. Uh, War Games is great. I like that one a lot. David Bischoff. And that, that's, a, that's a used bookstore staple. I, there's like a few novelizations that I'm like, I can go into any used bookstore in any city, and the odds are it'll be one of five. War Games, Tron is an easy one. Yeah, Tron's another one, yeah, yeah. And Brian Daly did a really good job on that novelization. He actually really fleshed out the world. And you talk about deleted scenes, he got a few in there that – didn't resurface until I think the Blu-ray even. Wow, I mean, yeah, that's true. I like that they, they are. There are some ones that are like you can tell that they're 
you know, I like them because they're so well written, but they're also ones that are rare. And I like those as well. Like there's a family tie ties one based on the TV show. My you know, elementary school had that one. Which one? The family ties. Oh, Alex, Alex gets the business. Yes. My, my, not my, my fourth grade classroom had that book. Yeah. So I mean, like there's rare ones too, that I like that you don't often see like, you know, license to drive is good. And, uh, um, singer or Peter Lorraine just is the writer's actual name. Yes. Um, but there's a lot of this stuff that it's really like the weird ones like the Fonz goes to college, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Brady Bunch go to New York City, like stuff that was never made into a script, but was just made into a book. I love that stuff. I've actually got uh, sitting on my shelf because I was at a there was a shop in Fort Smith, Arkansas that I went to a few weeks ago, a clueless novel where Cher goes to Paris. See and that? That's the stuff I love because you know you don't know if it's based off a script that wasn't produced. Or it was just this person's task with taking the characters in a new direction. But if you like the characters, it's a great uh, story to read. You know, something you've never seen before. Because I was saying that I grew up myself when I would read these books. That was uh, one of the things I really glommed onto was I loved Clueless. So I was excited that they did three novels based on it that I could then read through 1996. And that helped you know it was fun and that kind of actually bridged the gap into the tv series which i hated and dropped immediately well see that's the thing too like, i'm not reading the sci-fi but i would imagine if you're into star wars star trek yeah like that's those that's great that's great fun to be able to be taken into worlds that haven't existed yet especially before star wars became so um you know every day you know the movies they were making I mean, the books they were making, there was nothing out there at the time. It, uh, between, I got in about 1997, and you're right. Um, you know, I, I really like that you were talking about the, the comedy ones, because those really are the rarer ones, because, of course, the sci-fi stuff stays in print. That, people are going to pick that up. Scholastic, they're going to make one run of the arachnophobia novelization, and then they're going to drop it. <laughs> Though that one, is, though that one has actually survived through bootlegs pretty commonly. That one's pretty easy to find, actually. Wait, what's that called? Arachnophobia? Arachnophobia. Oh, arachnophobia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, arachnophobia is uh, one that I'm going to be keeping that one in my head, and I'm going to probably be trying to write that now. I like that one. That, yeah. That's the book I'd buy. Yeah. Um, well, like uh, we ourselves, actually, um, Albert and I, a few years ago, just for fun, we tried to do a fake B movie uh, for a podcast, and it yeah. we called it Penguigeddon. Penguigeddon. That was. I was trying to think of that the other day. Yeah, Penguigeddon. Yeah, we just yeah. it was for April Fool's Day, and we just uh, we put up an outline and then we just riffed on it for an hour. I like that. Whatever happened to that idea? Um, we just have the podcast sitting out there. Uh, Available, it's on thefilmroom.org, and uh, I actually kind of want to write it into a full script because we came up with it would have been about oh, yeah. the Church of Santa, um, <laughs> Church. Uh, let's see, it would have been Church of Santa, which of course was actually a satanic cult. Uh, that would be uh, sending out killer penguins dressed in uh, Santa hats to kill mm -hmm. people, and eventually polar, and eventually polar bears uh, would come in to be the Deus Ex Machina. Wow. Yeah, we we made basically a uh, like for a couple of years after that we expanded on that and made a little fake movie studio. Yeah. Headed That's... by a uh, 
a coked out madman, basically. See, yeah. I like that. that. That's a whole world you can create. It is, um, and then and then and then just this week, I read a book about Charles Band and Empire Pictures, and realized, oh wait, no, no, we were, we were just describing what was really going on. We were just describing exactly what was going on. But it, but I, I want to get back to that point that I was making about, which is, again, you point out the rarity of this stuff, and that stuff really was useful. And you're right, you don't see it anymore because, you know, if I want to watch a movie. All I have to do is go to Voodoo, and in two seconds, I've got it downloaded on my phone. Right. Well, that's why I love used bookstores. If you go into a, a new bookstore, you're going to find books you will find anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. if you go yes. into a used bookstore, you're going to find things that only exist possibly in this one place. And to me, that's that's what makes it interesting. You can find some really weird shit in the corners. Of yes. The <laughs> you would not have known about otherwise. And that, I have a... I have a hard too with record stores. Like, why go into a new record store? Not that they exist anymore, but why not go into a used record store and find things that don't, you couldn't find anywhere else? Well, you know, I, I mentioned that trip to Fort Smith. Uh, the whole reason that I went up there was so that I could go to. There's a big warehouse type bookstore there that's a used bookstore, and that's where I got a hardcover Saved by the Bell novel, and the Clueless book was so that. You could find that stuff there because I'm not going to find that elsewhere. I'm, I'm not going to go to Books a Million and find that. No. The yeah. only place you're going to find this stuff is if you have the time and the patience to go through a lot of books that may not interest you. You'll eventually find something that will. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I'm really with you on that. Um, I, I, I do want to ask, uh, because we talked about, obviously, our thoughts on you know, we did a little bit on a lot on uh, Passable. I do have some thoughts on um, Stinker, which is what, what made you decide to do a riff on the trucker movie? Because that is. Yeah, that's a movie that's very specific to its time. Very. If you didn't grow up, then you wouldn't. I mean, it looks like sci-fi, really. Mm -hmm. But if you were young then, like I was, and like, you know, my aunt had a CB radio and it was all things Southern were big at that time. And um, if there was a period of two, three years where everything was CB and trucking. And this is when Jimmy Carter was in office, he was Southern. And it was right mm -hmm. before things switched from rural Southern to urban Northeast. I am, you know, it's funny you say that. I am, as I'm from Arkansas, so I am absolutely fixated on that one very specific moment and so of course for me this book was, was crack because yeah. i because i got all the references i knew exactly what you were going for the thing i love about it is it's barely parody it's oh, i think you know i gave it to my father and he thought it was a real movie because these movies yeah. are really i mean you look back there's always a monkey giving the finger, or mm -hmm. a hot air balloon, or an elephant doing a dance. It's very surreal stuff, uh, and very bizarre stuff, and it just felt normal at the time, but you look back now, and like, that's not normal. No, it, like, the only, the only, like, thing that made it feel even vaguely like it was outside the norm of what you would see in these is the kid that speaks in pure profanity, and even that isn't that weird compared to some of the stuff that's in there. No, 
Well, that's the thing too. Like kids in seventies movies would drop anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, ethnic slurs, bad words. It didn't matter. They were just, they were almost like as useful as the, the chimp who gave the finger. So I wanted to get that in there um, with a um, semi uh, quasi uh, dis- mentally disabled boy named Buck who only speaks in curses uh, from West Virginia, which is close to where I grew up. But I, I wanted to get that in there. Just, you know, the kid's only in there for comedic purposes. And when you think about it, it's not really funny that no. he is a dimwit who's ended up with these three honkies uh, riding around without a seatbelt in the back seat of a Trans Am. It's, I, 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 you mentioned giving that to your dad. I, I described that one to my dad. And when I got to the part about John Hamm doing the Burt Reynolds type part, he was sold immediately just <laughs> on that. Well, John Hamm, is, you know, it's funny. Uh, he, his father worked for a trucking company. Really? Oh, oh perfect. I guess that's one of the reasons why he said yes to the. He also grew up in the Ozarks. Yes, he did, which is uh, that's my area. That's my area. So he knows from that world. Um, I think a lot of people don't know from that world, and certainly Gen Z or maybe millennials didn't come to it like uh, those who were boomers or Gen X. But um, I always loved those movies, and I, I, I had never seen anything done uh, on them parody wise which I found crazy because they're so bizarre they, uh, yeah so I just thought it would be a fun thing to do and I, I again as someone who really did get those references I could feel the affection because it just it, it, it was just so again it's just so barely anything's I mean it really isn't because some of the stuff that's in there and getting a, Getting John DiMaggio to do just an absolutely perfect Dom DeLuise was... Oh, my God. Well, that's the thing. He grew up with it, too, as did Ray Seahorn, who grew up in Virginia Beach. Yeah. These people just grew up with it, and they they know it, and it's in them. Uh, and, like, John DiMaggio, as you mentioned, knows it. And I don't... Uh, I don't think uh, younger actors, actresses could have done that. They just don't know. From it. I mean, it's, I'm not criticizing them. God knows. Uh, but it's just a very specific thing that does not exist anymore. And I find it fascinating that that type of character, a trucker um, from the South, could be America's hero, which ended so quickly when uh, Reagan came in in 80. Things... Yeah. Uh, went urban pop culture wise, which I find interesting too, with you know, breakdancing and, and rap. Uh, it just switched to a 180 switch uh, from everything that was white trash honky to urban uh, northeast slick. It's it, it really is thing that fascinates me. I'm because again, I I've spent hours uh one of the things i used to do as a kid was i would sit down at the arkansas democrat gazette uh they had a complete microfilm of them in the little rock library and so i would go and spend an entire day just reading them and of course now as fate would have it through my job i can now browse them digitally and no one can say anything to me about doing it on the clock because hey i'm just doing research it's research (laughs) and so research it's 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 so it's crazy because you really will see like i'll see little things like the legend of boggy creek um 
Only played uh, in Little Rock for one week, and I still find that bizarre. Yeah. That should have played for six months in Little Rock. I there's don't... a ton of those movies. I mean, another good novelization is Highball, which has to do with trucking um, in the late 70s. And just the specific world, whether it's the slang of the CB or the way that the inside of these trucking cabs looked, um, or the lot lizards who yep. up at these places, like that just does not exist anymore. Or it's Lost World. And, and I mean, what's funny is another thing I should point out is because of where I live, um, Arkansas is still very much a trucking hub. So what I find kind of surreal is I see the ghosts of it. Uh, in college, we used to go sit at a, a truck stop, actually. And so a lot of that world, bizarrely enough, I was able to picture it firsthand because I'd kind of been in it in the modern form, even though it was different. It, it still has a ghost in this world along I-40, but you've got to find you got to find the very specific spots. Oh yeah, definitely. But to me, it's very, very much Americana. I mean, very much, it, especially around the time of the bicentennial, mm -hmm. where the heroes in this country were blue collar, not academic. Uh, didn't like the elite, which actually you can see now. I mean, that, that has not disappeared. Uh, they just weren't in power. They, they were those who were fighting the power. And uh, it was all sort of bundled up in this red, white, and blue bicentennial patriotism, um, which is, you know, the, the, pr the proudness that the country was showing at that point. You just don't see anymore. And it seems like, too, it was, everything now is so cut up and, and schisms that you don't see this cohesiveness like you would at that time where it seemed like the entire country was into this. Of course, they weren't, but it seemed that there were so few pop culture options that this was a universal within the country uh, way to look at the world. And I kind of miss that, actually. It's everything's so broken up now. You'll have you know, 2% liking this, 5% liking that, 6% liking this. But at that time, it seemed like 100% of the country was uh, patriotic and into Southern pop culture. It, it, it really did. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that, frankly, as someone who loves the music of that era, a lot of it really does still pop. Um, oh, yeah. I, I love that stuff. Jerry Reed and all those kinds yeah. of those trucking anthems I love. Um, and that's another thing you don't hear. Unless it's on like serious '70s country, um, you don't hear this stuff anymore. Uh, but I love that stuff. To me, it's just like American history, um, and it, it's just surprising that it sort of disappeared as quickly as it did. I, I have to ask. Uh, I really do love that the soundtrack for Stinker really does sound like that stuff. I, I like that the music that's in it really. I mean, it's weird because. I've read the book, I've listened to the audiobook both, and it's weird because I feel like that movie takes up as much space in my head as a lot of real movies I've seen. Oh. Well, that's good. I want it, I want it to I want you to uh, meld the two together. I love that. I mean, but a lot of a lot of time and effort was put into that soundtrack. And I should mention the guy, my friend, who is a professional musician, Mark Rosso, played with a ton of good bands. Like that soundtrack features an amazing variety of New York session musicians, as well as uh, people from various bands uh, that you would have heard of. 
and it's uh, that's that's a professional soundtrack. It, if I saw that and bought that and listened to it, I would have thought that that was based on the real thing. It, I will I will say that uh, I I've had that song, the Sticker Let's Lose theme song, stuck in my head for the past week. I listened to it about a week ago. Well, that is all Mark. I mean, the lyrics to that song, which are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so clever. Uh, that comes from Mark Rosa, who's a friend of mine and a writer uh, who's written for New Yorker, Vanity Fair, everywhere. Um, he's just uh, as good as it gets. And that is a soundtrack. And I, I told him beforehand, I was like, I want this to be something that if you picked up in a store and bought, you would think it's a real movie. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, and I, he achieved it. I mean, it's just great. Yeah, I it, felt that. <laughs> it reminded me a bit of it reminded me a bit of the tra- title track from Walk Hard, actually. Oh yes. <laughs> you know that getting it exactly perfect to where if you took it out of context, you wouldn't know the difference. Well, that's that's the um, the accuracy of the parody, and it mm-hmm. can also work as a satire. But it, if it's not accurate, um, like that's thank you. Mm-hmm. In summer, it's too goofy for me, and I I like parody and satire really really dry and Mm -hmm. so similar to the original that you would if you weren't familiar with it confuse the two and if you don't know the original it can work on its own Mm -hmm. right yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt your question no 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 because you jumped in with a fantastic point which is Mm -hmm. it really should work that because yeah i don't have the reference points for everything for wet hot american summer Mm -hmm. mm-hmm I and I agree it is kind of on the goofy side. I I like it a little bit more, but I probably I watched it as a uh, Netflix. I'm killing time. And the movie we started watching before was Grandma's Boy. Just to be blunt. Mm-hmm. Look, a lot of the Babadook would have been probably hilarious after starting Grandma's Boy. Can I just say it? <laughs> Yikes! Um, but Mike, I did want to ask, what are some of your favorite parodies? Parodies. Well, my favorite all-time parody is National Lampoon High School Yearbook, uh, which I think is brilliant. And yes. it's on a lot of different levels. So what it is, if you're not familiar with it, um, is it was written in the uh, 70s, P.J. O'Rourke and, and Tony Hendra and other National Lampoon writers um, took on a um, uh, a yearbook parody that they wrote um, of early 60s. And you can later see a lot of the characters and type of sensibility in Animal House. Mm-hmm. But what they did was it looks like a, a, a yearbook, but it's also um, very satirical. I mean, it, it, it takes on, you know, like lost hopes and dreams and the way that they were looking to the future at, in the early 60s in a way that reality hit. Uh, so it's a very sharp parody working on a lot of different uh, angles and a lot of different levels. And that that I like a lot. I don't like a, um, a parody that's just uh, straight ahead that looks like something. I think a lot mm-hmm. can be done with a parody, and I think they really pulled it off. Yeah, that's 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 a good one. That's I, I love stuff like that um, where you're – it's not just okay. We're, we're we're making a joke. It's as Albert said. It stands mm-hmm. on its own as its own independent commentary. 
and work and because yeah i mean we one of our our first april fool's day cast was we pretended we liked oh. seltzer bird seltzer and friedberg movies oh god that's right yeah. i nearly forgot about that you blocked it out because we had to watch those movies Yes, we did. We watched. Um, what did we watch? The we Starving watched... Games epic. We the Starving Games date movie oh. and disaster movie. That's right. And it's all it is is yeah. a parade of hey, this came out last year. Remember that, and not going any further. Well, that's the reason why uh, airplane is so sharp. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just sharp, and it's hard to explain what makes it sharp. But you know. When you compare it with straight-ahead parody, where it's just references and you're laughing because everyone recognizes a certain character or joke, that's mm-hmm. being really lazy. And it doesn't it bring anything new to the to the table. And I mean, Airplane will be watched forever, deservedly, mm-hmm. because it's well, like yeah, okay, yeah. And I've never seen like I know, uh, I know now from like commentaries and from like I think TMC uh, put uh, aired. Airplane and Zero Hour back to back, but that's basically a uh, a one by one riff of that, you know, just playing mm-hmm. it completely straight. Uh, and uh, I had never seen that, and I was introduced to Airplane at a very early age. So yeah, well, yeah, it, they literally bought the right to uh, Zero Hour to make mm-hmm. Airplane. Like, and how many like of ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen year old boys even knew Zero Hour? They didn't. <laughs> No, that's how good the writing was. You didn't need to have seen it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a lot of it. A lot of it just works by itself. And if later on you happen to come across, this is one of my favorite things in life. Just uh, being familiar with the thing, and then coming across the original at some point and going, "Oh, right. yeah," and it just makes it way better. Yeah. For me, I, I do have a question for, for Mike. Please. I've been uh Please uh, Zephyr, I was about to I was about to tap you on the head and say No, don't worry. I, I've been here. It's just you know, trying to figure no. out when best to chime in. No, um, I was about to try and make some space for you. Well yeah. um since you've already outlined that you do have a book uh, another book in the works tackling the uh like films like slacker and clerks and like the uh like the gen x kind of movies uh have you considered doing like a parody of like a junior novelization for like a children's film that never existed well that's interesting yeah i wanted to do something that would be um really disturbing but (laughs) maybe to appeal to kids like mac and me Um, yes Yes. Oh, God, yes. I think that would be, or even something like a Disney movie from the 70s where it would be like a Hasidic rabbi and a grizzly are lost in the woods together and they have to find their way back home and they can only do it together. I would I would read this. In between uh, prepping for, for this cast, I, I just kind of threw on some some old children's films that I grew up on and thinking this would be a, a fantastic exercise to do. Just how do you create like this uh, unknown children's film? Because we have seen films that 
do come along and we wonder how the hell did they get made? Mm-hmm. Like what? And, uh, uh, more or less like within the past few years, uh, like uh, the Oogie Loves or... Uh, oh. Yeah. The Oogie uh, Loves is ground zero for the film room, just a reminder to everybody. That was our start. What? Sure. Yeah, okay. it's... Yeah, films like where they're trying to establish a, a new intellectual property that that never takes off. Mm-hmm. Or and what was the movie that you used as an example? The Oogie Loves and the Great Balloon Adventure. Yeah. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> Let me tell you, it is uh, okay. So I think it has the record for earning the least money ever for a, like an opening weekend for a wide release at like the what was it thirty thousand, and uh, it's it's like a bunch of puppets. It's it's meant for little 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 kids. Uh, it somehow has Christopher Lloyd in it. Uh, Chaz Palminteri. Yeah, and we just watched it together. And uh, like just, just kind of synchronized, and um, just did like a running text commentary that we turned into uh, an audio file or like an audio thing that we cut along with the movie. <laughs> so if you're ever going to ingest it for whatever yeah. reason, you know we have a version out there. But we did the same with the talking cat. We did. <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. Like, horrifying yeah like it it tried to incorporate elements of rocky horror and trying to do like audience participation for the kids including like stand up and sit down cues Mm -hmm. yeah it's uh just tell me what to do just just play them (laughs) exactly and uh yeah, it, the, the problem was, I think, as far as the... Because um, it ran for, what, two weeks? Two, two weeks. weeks, yeah. Yeah. Was that uh, there's nothing there for the parents. <laughs> like, it's... Yeah. It's, well, it it's like a... there's nothing there for the kids, either. No. Because <laughs> usually, really. usually if there's nothing there for the par- parents, come to find out, you know... Because, like, the stuff that Lola loves is... Lola's into SpongeBob right now. Lola's into... Uh, Toy Story, and I'm sitting here going, okay, throw that on, honey. I Here, let me get my copies out that I've already got. So I've already got this stuff. I'm looking at a review online. It says, forget Saul. I'd argue this is the most freakishly disturbing outing of Carrie L's <laughs> career. Uh, oh, he's right. horrifying in it. I forgot he was in it. Rating F. <laughs> I would know. Nathan Rabin's right up on it for my uh, world of flops, or I think he was still doing year at that point. I love Nathan. Yeah, I am a huge, huge fan. I've read his review of uh, a couple of your books. Now that I think of it, Um, he's uh, he. Yeah, Rabin is one of my favorite writers. Uh, He's terrific. He he wrote up the Yogi Loves, and I cannot recommend it enough. it really is surreal, and it's the kind of stuff. It, it is. It is fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that we've gotten off onto this di- diversion about 
that Yogi loves, but it's it's yeah. When all you have to do is watch a clip of Carrie Carrie always in it, and it's like, oh oh, this is this is this is scary. This is not mm-hmm. funny. This is scary. Uh, I have to watch it now. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did. I did want to ask um, since we're, since okay, we've covered the the, the Hugh stuff from the eighties. What's some stuff that you think still holds up from the eighties? Oh, that's interesting. Um, if anything, I mean, yeah, I I'd have to think about that. I mean, from the seventies, I would say Over the Edge. I would say um, Breaking. Breaking away. Yes. I think more has lasted from the 70s. You know, like even the so called good movies like Big Chill, I think, are garbage. Yeah, I do too. Um, I don't know. I have to think about it. It's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I, think you're, I think you're right about that. I think that a lot of the 80s stuff is just, it's unnerving. I mean, I, uh, mm-hmm. Zephyr and I are not fans of Brain Man for, well, pretty obvious reasons. Uh, Rain Man did not help our culture, to, to put it bluntly. I imagine it didn't. I always thought his performance was atrocious. The further that I get from it, the more that I absolutely hate everything Dustin Hoffman is doing in it. And what kills me is, I think Hoffman is an absolutely brilliant actor. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer, aside from that complete cop-out ending that just, for me, almost wrecks the film. Uh, is so He's so brilliant in that film. That's the work that I want to remember him for. But when I get to stuff like, but when I watch Rain Man, there's maybe one or two moments where it's like, oh, I've never seen someone have a meltdown before in film. That's it. Otherwise, it's a, otherwise the the number one, the number two film of that year was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh yeah, yeah. But that and, would, for any normal, not normal, but non, um, you know. Um, suffering actor who's not suffering from a mental ailment uh, who would uh, play someone who is. I mean, that would go for anyone who plays a mental retardation or mm-hmm. any of that. It, to me, it always just rings totally false. That's why when it got to the whole discussion in Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder, yeah. About going full <laughs> Oh, I, I don't like that word. So to speak. And we can happily believe that. I was sitting there in the theater. I almost wanted to stand up and applaud because... It was finally someone was saying aloud something that had been bothering me for decades. Oh my gosh, the worst. And they always win, too, for best actor. They always do. Well, it's like when Eddie Redmayne mm-hmm. won for uh, playing Stephen Hawking over Michael Keaton winning over Michael Keaton for Birdman. Yeah. It's like mm. you, you're, win- you're giving it because he put, on a per- he put on the performance that played to what you liked, whereas Keaton was out there just absolutely throwing fists and uh, I'll, I'll be watching Birdman a hell of a lot more in the future than The Theory of Everything. I'll put it in the block. Oh, that would go for all those movies, like the Sean Penn movie. Oh, God. He's, he's, oh, Penn is atrocious. And it's like, and the funny thing is, there are autistic actors. That's the funny thing. Well, exactly. Or even Sean Penn. I mean, like any of these people are horrendous in them, and, but they always seem to come out on top. It's because it's most acting, not best acting. Right, that's definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and yeah, I and I, I'm really excited. I do have to ask a little bit about the '90s project because, of course, now you're really getting into my stuff because, you know, I was 17 in 2001, and so I doubled back and I watched all that stuff because I thought I needed it. Um, 
What are some of the films that you're going to be riffing on for that? Because I cannot wait for this. Okay, well, that is um, Suburbia, which was Richard uh, Yeah, Linklater. Richard Linklater. Um, and, and Eric Bogosian's script. Right. Um, Clerks. Yes. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Uh, singles, Reality Bites. I knew that would have to be something because Reality Bites is just, in my eyes, about like Pretty in Pink. Right, a horrendous movie. Um, oh. But all those type of movies and the type of movies of documentaries about grunge that hit in like '91 um, that came in way after, I always thought were pathetic. So that's what I mean. And that was a this was a tough one to write, truthfully, because in these movies, not much happens mm -hmm. uh, at all. And the characters aren't really experienced in life. They they are hiding from life, and they don't accomplish anything. So it was tough to write, but I hope to have uh, nailed it as far as the sensibility. Because wow. watching those movies now, I mean, that, they do not hold up. And no. The characters in Reality Bites, you just want to kill. I mean, they are horrendous characters. If, if it was a death match between the characters in Reality Bites and the characters in Rent, I would just sit back and say, let them fight, and I'll just and I'll just enjoy the uh, carnage. Right. I don't care what happens to them. I, I really don't. It's like, anytime you see a character that's like, I don't want to sell out, and then I'm sitting here looking at Steven <laughs> Soderbergh's career going, really? You sure you don't want to sell out? It looks it great. <laughs> it's a mass-produced product for those who don't want to sell out. <laughs> that's that's the glorious irony. <laughs> it really is. And as I said, I, I I really really enjoyed this. Uh, this is this is a book. I it's it's very quotable. It's incredibly quotable. Harmless as a Smurf at an orgy is a phrase I can see myself using in the future. <laughs> Please do. Uh, really some solid stuff um and i just this is one i really do want to get out to people um as i said I, I, the, the audiobook is i had just listened to the sandman and that was 14 hours long so this was almost a, an appetizer in comparison well it's over five hours yeah yeah, yeah. but it's still it's like next to that it was nothing it was like what, was, like what, was, what was the long one you wrote you the sandman the sandman the uh, audible adaptation of the sandman how was that? Utterly, unbelievably fantastic. Uh, may have been the media event of the summer for me. Oh, all right. Uh, because I'm a bit, because I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, so that kind of skews it for me. But um, let me ask real quick: what have you been? Ex what art have you been experiencing in quarantine? Because that's been what a big topic been? we've been going into. It's oh, more yeah. like what it would how it'd be different than pre quarantine. But like just what you've been watching in the last few months during this. Oh well, it's a lot of um, a Criterion Channel and basically. Mm. and it really hasn't been much beyond writing and just catching up on all these books that I wanted to get through and never really did. So it's mostly at this point just reading and classic movies. Cool. Well, I have to say this: um, I've been rewatching Pen Fifteen, which I think is brilliant. That's what I'm most. Oh, the, uh... The uh, 
the Hulu series, right? Uh, it's really, really, really good. The writing's great, acting's phenomenal. Uh, it's really like freakishly good. I'll look into it. I'll look into it. Of course, I got Hulu. Yeah, same. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm questioned out. I, I, I hope we haven't. I hope we've been gracious hosts. Uh, no, absolutely. And listen, I li- I really appreciate you enjoying it and reading it and um, spreading the word. It means a lot. I, I will I will be pre-ordering the next one when it comes. Do you know if uh, you're going to be doing an audiobook for that one? I hope to. I've been pushing for that. In the meantime, oh. I'm re-releasing Randy uh, with new material and Stinker Let's Loose, the books that'll be out later in early winter. Uh, I'll probably be picking those up. I, I, I kind of want physical copies of both. Uh, now, Randy, I actually experienced via the uh, Stitcher. Stitcher, I, I, right? That I, was an audio. Um, yeah, uh, that was fun to do. But the actually a real publisher got in touch with me. I mean, originally Randy was self-published, but yeah, it'll be um, re-released uh, sometime this winter. I actually, yeah, because I saw oh, Barnes and Noble. I saw Barnes and Noble had listings for that. Um, Oh really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I I want to say I saw them just the other day on there because when we when I was doing my research, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and I look forward to picking those up. I'll because I want physical copies. Uh, my copy of uh, Stinker is a Kindle, and then the Audible version, of oh, course. Good. Nice. So yeah, so I because I did pick that up on the Kindle the second it came available actually, and uh, summer of 2017 was not a fun summer for Austin, but that helped. Just gonna say that 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 helped. Um, y'all, uh, I'm gonna defer to my uh, co-host. Do y'all have any other questions you want to bring up? Uh, no, I think that well covers everything. I I guess for me, I do have one more question, and that would, would be would mm-hmm. would there be a possibility of having a uh, passable in pink be turned into an actual movie as huh. something? Uh-huh. like a, a Netflix yeah I would special. love that I mean it, I would love it for it to go from novelization to a non-existent movie to an audio production of that novelization to then a real movie based on the novelization to a non-existent movie I would think <laughs> that would be I would be in heaven if that happened it would make for a killer film it'd be it completing really would. the circle of life uh, there yeah, yeah. I would, I would. it would go the machete route. Oh yeah, yeah. It would. Yeah, it would. Yeah. True. And so, well, um, where can we find you, Mike, online? Oh, MikeSacks.com, and also on Twitter. Let me look it up. As I, oh, Michael B. Sachs, S-A-C-K-S, on Twitter. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on, and uh, y'all, find these books, uh, pick them up, you you really won't regret it. They're good gut laughs, and in the summer of 2020, we need good gut laughs, and so you'll get them here. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for having coming on. Yeah, this, right, this was like, one of the more... Uh, and uh, keep in touch. It was fun. We will, yeah, we will. Absolutely. And we'll certainly this is be one of the more fun ones to research. And when and when the new book comes out, we will certainly be uh, giving it some hype on our on our pages. Oh, I love it. All right. Well, let's mm-hmm. be in touch around then. All right. Absolutely. All right, Thanks. All right. so much. Take care. All right. Stinker, let's lose. Stinker, let's lose.
Seeker, let's live. Going pedal to the metal with a monkey in the middle, it's true. Stinker, let's lose. Stinker, let's lose. One foot on the floor, the other hanging out the door. When I'm stinker, let's lose. Picked up a hippie chippy from way down in Mississippi. She wore no tool stool beaver. But she was high class muffin. She was looking real tough. There ain't a whale stinker could leave her. Now every county mountain and a city kitty, they were chasing stinker far and wide. From B-Town all the way to Watergate City, you could hear all them lot lizards cry. When stinker lets loose, stinker lets loose. Going pedal to the metal with a monkey in the middle is true. Stinker lets loose, stinker lets loose. One foot on the floor, the other hanging out the door when I'm thinking let's lose. Addie Stevenson is a normal teenage girl with a big problem. Addie, open! We need to get moving! Now! I said I would be there! Jeez. Her older sister is getting married. You don't think that the sequin tube top clashes with the fuchsia and turquoise moon boots? On the same night as her prom. Forgot. Unbelievable. And she said yes to two boys. Roland, this is the Grimer. Grimer, this is Roland. Uh, my name is Roland. I think we met the other night at the mall. You were riding a unicycle? You smelled like burnt hair and frozen orange juice concentrate? Great story. Wonderful. This guy is a real Phil Donahue. Now she'll find out if she's... Possible in pink. Starring Gillian Jacobs as Addie. Everything's fine. Everything's just hunky-dory with old Addie Stevenson. Adam Scott as Roland. You look volcanic tonight. Volcanic? I roast for you. I don't get it. I don't either. Then why did you say it? Bobby Moynihan as the Grimer. Ugh, I just don't get it. Roland? Come on, that's not a name. That's a dissolving tablet for diarrhea relief. <laughs> right? Bob Odenkirk as Addie's father. The world is a very strange place, Addie. It's a lot weirder than you could ever imagine. Nothing more than a vat of overflowing insanity. Lorraine Newman as Addie's mother. Let me tell you something, Addie. Even if you aim for mediocrity, life is still a goddamn pain in the ass. James Adomian as Pribino. Babe, is this a gaggers? A yuckers? You're wasting your $500 champagne on a non-lake girl. Ray Seahorn as Christina. Leave her alone. Poor thing's shipwrecked on planet hormone. And Judd Nelson as Robbie the janitor. Isn't prom in a few days? What's the theme this year, anyway? Don't you forget about me. <laughs> oh, oh, they will. From writer Mike Sachs and director Eric Jason Martin comes a totally tubular, all-new 80s prom-com with an all-star cast and an original soundtrack by Mark Rozo. Passable in pink. pink. An Audible Original Production.